as the kids are heading back, as the workers are heading out, we are going to turn to the book of Malachi. And this is our final message in our polity series. So turn with me to the book of Malachi. Now, if you're wondering, where is Malachi? If you go to the start of your New Testament and then flip maybe two pages back, you're going to run smack into Malachi. It's at the very end of the Old Testament. It's the last book of the Old Testament. We're going to be looking specifically at chapter 3, starting at verse 6. Before we do that, let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, in your kindness, you remind us this morning through songs that celebrate the nature of the gospel that your generosity knows no bounds. That you gave us the greatest gift imaginable. That you held nothing back from us. That you sent your Son to redeem us. You sent a pure, spotless Lamb. So Lord, now as we turn to your Word in Malachi chapter 3 and we consider your call to give, would you help us to see it through the lens of your generosity? Help us to see it through the prism of your faithfulness to us who didn't deserve it in Jesus Christ. Do all these things for your glory. In the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, the reason we're doing one final message in the Polity series is because we've had some counsel from our financial advisory team. That's a team of guys who serve the elders and specifically provide an, an extra layer of accountability with our finances. And they also give us counsel in terms of setting the budget and things like that. And they, they felt like it would be good if we had a message specifically related to giving. And as elders, we talked about it, and we specifically on our retreat came to agreement and felt like that would be a wise thing to do. And so we're going to have a message on giving at the end of the polity series. Now, that'll make sense hopefully in a second. What we're going to do is look at Malachi. And Malachi is one of the minor prophets. It doesn't mean Malachi is not important. It just means the book is shorter, so it's not nearly as long or intimidating in some ways as a book maybe like Ezekiel or Jeremiah. So if you're there, Malachi 3 is where we're going to be looking. Now, Malachi is written as one of the last books of the Old Testament. It's penned somewhere around 450 years before the birth of Christ. And the book is called, obviously titled, Malachi. And that literally means, my messenger. Some actually think it means, messenger of Yahweh. It's written to the people of Judah after they've returned from exile. So remember, they get conquered, they get taken off into exile, and then they're allowed to return back to Jerusalem. And so they return to their land, but it's not the same as it was when they left. It's a land broken. The temple's been destroyed. The walls of Jerusalem have been torn down. And so they return to rebuild their homes, to rebuild the temple, in many ways to, to rediscover their cultural identity. And so Malachi is a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah, two other Old Testament books. And so in a way, that kind of explains why this is a helpful place to go in the midst of a polity series to talk about giving. Because if you remember, the tasks of Ezra and Nehemiah were to lead the people in the rebuilding of the Jewish society, to rebuild the temple, literally. To rebuild Jerusalem and, and to labor to reinstitute the law of God in the land. So they're rebuilding a government and a religious system. They're, they're doing sort of Old Testament versions of polity type stuff. And this book is in that same context, in that same time period. Malachi is their contemporary. And it's actually a book that has six different disputations. And six different prophetic words that instruct Judah. And they're actually not just instruction. They're actually six different corrections. So the, the book is written to correct practices that the author sees going on with God's people. And in particular, Malachi is dealing with issues of worship. So in one of the disputations, he, con he condemns a corruption in the priesthood. That the religious leaders aren't living and acting the way they should be. In another part, he attacks their corruption of marriage. They've come back to the land, and the land is filled with foreigners, and the people start intermarrying with unbelievers, with idolaters, with pagans. 
something we're forbidden to do, even as New Testament believers. You marry other believers that you're equally yoked. And another point, kind of building off that one, Malachi rebukes them because they're divorcing their wives for, for reasons like incompatibility. Sort of an Old Testament version of no-fault divorce. And so they get rebuked for it. They get rebuked for mistreating the underprivileged, for failing to care for the poor and the widows. And then in chapter 3 we see the book turns its attention to a failure of the people to give tithes. Now in all three of those categories, the indictment that Malachi has for Judah is that they're practicing corrupt worship. That their worship is, in a sense, deformed. It's not that they're not singing the right songs. It's that their worship, as evidenced by their lifestyle, their worship, as evidenced by their lifestyle, is out of step with the covenant they profess. Out of step with the covenant that they profess. Their lack of giving in specific tells a different story than what they profess with their mouths. So that's the thing that he narrows in on. That their failure to tithe is actually a failure of worship. Now, I think part of what he's saying, to give you kind of a first illustration, is that if we were to walk in here and you were to look around during the singing of the song and you saw somebody hand stuff in their pockets, mouth resolutely closed, you think, well, that's, that's a strange thing to do during worship. Likewise, if we're sitting here during the sermon and you look out and you look down the row and you see your neighbor and he's actually put in a couple earbuds and you can tell he's listening to, to music on his, on his iPhone instead of listening to the sermon, you'd think, that's just strange. That's, that's a corrupt worship. Like, you're not supposed to do that in worship. Well, part of Malachi's point is in the same way, as strange as those things would be, if someone comes to worship, and they don't give generously. There's something broken about the way that they're coming before God. We're going to see that in this book, in this chapter. They've been given over to a dead orthodoxy. So they profess the right things, but their life doesn't match up. So all of that, now let's look at Malachi 3, starting at verse 6. Hear the holy and authoritative Word of God. For I, the Lord do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. God's holy word, may he write its truth upon our hearts. You sense there the nature of what's going you sense the dysfunction of their worship that the author takes up in the nature of giving. Now, as we jump into the text, I think the appropriate place to start is to ask the question, what is a tithe? Because that's really the linchpin of what he's saying. The question gets asked, why do you rob me? And they say, how have we robbed you, Lord? And he specifically responds, because you're depriving me of the tithe. So Malachi 3 is, is dealing with this issue of a tithe. Now, it's not a new idea in Malachi. The tithe gets introduced all the way back in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 27.30, it says, Every tithe of the land whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. When Moses says that the tithe 
is holy to the Lord, he means that it's consecrated. It's something that's set apart. Now, the word tithe literally means a tenth, 10%. That's the very definition and nature of the word. So a tithe is talking about 10%. So I was listening to a message earlier this week by another pastor, and he talked about, you know, if you say, I tithe 15%. Well, no, you don't. You tithe 10%, and then you tithe 5% beyond a tithe. But a tithe, by its very nature, is a 10% gift. But it's not a generic thing in the Old Testament. It's not just this word that we sometimes misunderstand and think that that's just, you look back at the whole Testament and there's just this one sense of tithe and, and one 10%. It's a tenth that's literally given to the Lord. It's set aside for the Lord. It's consecrated to the Lord. But there's actually three different types of tithes or tenths in the Old Testament. First, you have the Levitical or sacred tithe. That gets described in places like Numbers 18. To the Levites, in verse 21, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting. Verse 24, for the tithe of the people of Israel, the tenth, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites as an inheritance. Now the reason you hear that, there's this whole, one of the, one of the tribes of Israel are the Levites. And, and God ordained and instructed that they should give a tenth. All the other tribes should give a tenth of what they had each year to the Levites. And the reason is because the Levites didn't get a share of the land. When they get in the promised land, all the other tribes get a piece of the pie. And the Levites don't get a piece. And it's because the Levites are set aside to serve in the temple or the tabernacle before the temple's built. And so they live off of the tithe. And that's the purpose of that Levitical or sacred tithe. So 10% went to support the priests in their ministry duties. The second tithe is the tithe of feasts. It's described in places like Deuteronomy 14, 22-27. That tithe went to support all the festivals that ancient Israel had. So it's kind of like this combination of vacation and religious celebration and all sorts of things rolled up into one. So if you can kind of imagine you're combining in these religious festivals notions like Christmas and Easter and Fourth of July because there's a national sense to them as well. That's what these festivals were. And God instructs in His Word that each family was to take a tenth of what they had and give it each year for those festivals so that when they went down to Jerusalem, there was supply for those festivals. And the third tithe is a little bit unique. It's called the tithe for the poor. That's described in Deuteronomy 14, 28-29. That tithe can be thought of in two ways. It was either every third year you gave another tenth for the poor, or every year you set aside 3.3% of what you had. If that makes sense. So if you're keeping track, in the Old Testament, the tithe, as we tend to think of it, was actually several tithes that came out to 23.3% of your quote-unquote income, if they really had a concept like that in the Old Testament. That's a little bit different way to think about it, isn't it? Typically, we don't think about it in, that term, in those terms. But that's how it worked. That's how it functioned. That's only part of the concept. Part of what Malachi is referencing when he says they, they rob God is that these tents weren't just random. They were meant to be the first fruits. Now listen to how Nehemiah, Malachi's contemporary, describes the people's recommitment to tithing. So they're back in the land, right? They've returned from exile. They're back. And in Nehemiah, the people recommit to saying, we, we will support the work of ministry. We will support God's mission in this land. And they say this, Nehemiah 10.35, We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord, also to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God. Verse 39, For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain and wine and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of God. So you get that sense, first fruits is a technical term with a really obvious meaning, right? First fruits just means they committed in obedience to God's law when they tithe to bring the best that they have. So you don't bring your weakest calf for sacrifice. You bring an unblemished lamb. 
You don't bring the last bit of grain at the very end of your harvest after you've made sure you've got enough to get through the year and hope that what's left over is a tithe. When you harvest, you take your first fruits, the first 10%, and you bring it to God. So when the tithe, this first fruits, is set apart, is set apart as holy to God, it recognizes that everything comes from God. And it takes the gross of what they'd gathered and set apart, and it takes the first choicest 10%. doesn't set aside a safety net. And then with what's left over, tithe off of that. It doesn't make sure the food lasts, and then give what's ever left at the bottom of the grain containers. Malachi says, show the purity of your worship by showing that you trust the Lord. Give Him the first 10% and believe that He will provide. Now, when Malachi rebukes them for not giving a tithe, I think he's probably talking about the tenth given for the priests in the temple. The reason for that is he makes reference to the storehouses. That's the place where these were gathered, specifically in the temple, both for the offerings that were made in the temple and the service of the priests there. So listen how verses 8 and 10 talk about it. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. It's a, that first question is meant to just be, Will you rob God? It's supposed to kind of make you think, what a silly concept. Who can rob God? He owns everything. And yet, you are robbing me, God says. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Now that word contributions actually means offerings. So there's even this category in the Old Testament. You've got your tithes, your tenths that are set aside. And then there's offerings. There's free will offerings that go above and beyond that when you feel moved by God to offer more. Maybe maybe it's alms to the poor, special offerings of thanksgiving. Those are offerings that go even above and beyond the other tithes that were set aside. It says in verse 10, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. So again, the point is that a failure of generosity represents a failure of worship. It represented a failure, we don't always think of it this way, to support God's mission. In Malachi, a failure to support God's mission to rebuild the society that's meant to be a city on a hill. To rebuild its structures of worship. So when the tithe lacked, you see in Nehemiah, the priests are actually forced to work. They have to go out and make sure they're not going to starve. And so the work of ministry in the temple gets neglected. When the tithe lacked, God's mission for the remnant to be reestablished falls back. Now, last week we concluded by talking about the potential of polity. You remember that? If you weren't here last week, go listen to the message. You'll hear how we talked about the exciting things we have potential to achieve with this new polity. But the apex of that potential is that the polity can promote and serve mission. Can promote and serve being on mission for God, extending the glory of God's name through planting and building churches, through, through working for the Great Commission. But just like in the Old Testament, for this to happen, the storehouses need to be full. God works through means, right? God doesn't need us. He, he could accomplish His mission completely independent from anyone here, right? But in His kindness, He chooses to make men like Peter and Paul, with all their flaws, central to His mission. He chooses to make the normal, anonymous believers in the early church that we don't even know who they are, central to His mission. He chooses to make churches in wealthy cities like Corinth and out in the sticks like, like Philippi, central to His mission. He does that because He's kind. Because He wants us to experience the joy of serving Him. Because of that, we're not just called to be a part of the mission, we're called to support the mission. So as your pastors, we support this notion that we see in Malachi, we see throughout all the Old Testament, of giving a tithe. And as we look at the New Testament, we support a notion that you give a tithe and beyond. 
Now, for the remainder of this morning, I'm going to explain a rationale for why I think what we read in Malachi 3 is still instructive for us this morning. It's not a law of the same sort that it was for them, but I think it's still helpful, and it's still important, and it's still a guide for us. So, so how can we make that argument? Why can we say that what God instructs to ancient Israel, He instructs similarly to the church? Well, first reason, I think, we're going to answer this question now for the remainder of this morning. Why would someone give a tithe and beyond? Why should we give a tithe, 10%, and beyond? Well, first, we do it because the New Testament doesn't abolish the Old Testament. It exceeds it. It's not like there's the Old Testament with the law, and then Jesus arrives on the scene, and everything gets easier, and the bar gets lowered. That's not what grace does. The grace of the Gospel, the full revelation of Jesus Christ, has such an effect on our hearts that awesome things happen. The prophet Joel says, the Spirit is poured out indiscriminately upon all people, men and women, young and old, when the Gospel of Jesus Christ comes. And that has effects for how they live. We see this even in the fact that the tithe, you know when the tithe first comes on the scene? It's before the law is actually given. Both Abraham and Jacob, so pre-Moses, pre-law, practiced the tithe. 400 years before Mount Sinai. So in that sense, it makes a good deal of sense that the tithe would also continue after that same law is perfected in Christ. What does Christ say? I didn't come to abolish the law, right? I came to perfect it. That word perfect can also mean I'm the goal of the law. This is what it's always been aiming towards. So Paul also clearly sees a connection between the Old Testament tithing system and now the New Testament idea of support for gospel ministry. In 1 Corinthians 9.13, he makes this connection. Probably having in mind texts like Malachi 3. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, at the very least, Paul is saying that men who are called to teach and preach God's word should be supported by the rest of the congregation, by their generosity, in the same way the priests in the Old Testament were supported. In a way, it's very typical of the New Testament to use the Old Testament temple, those arrangements of the temple and the tabernacle system as a guide for the church. We see it in multiple places in the New Testament. I don't think Paul's reference to the Old Testament here mandates a tithe. But it does seem to imply that in Paul's mind, that tithe was a very good guide for believers. What Paul is clearly doing as he looks to those Old Testament temple rituals is saying and making the argument that the polity of the early church, the support of the apostles and the elders, for it to work and function, required generous giving. In the same way, the polity, the governance structure of ancient Israel, for it to work and function, required giving to support the work of the Levites and the priests. Why else do I think it's appropriate to talk about giving a tithe and beyond? Well, secondly, because tithing is just a very basic way to recognize, to give testimony to the fact that God owns everything. When you give your first fruits, the choicest of what you have, you acknowledge fundamentally that God is the source of everything. That every good and perfect gift comes from Him. There's no blessing that we receive that isn't an extension of God's benevolence to us in Christ. In fact, inherent to being a created being, not being the Creator, inherent to that is the fact that we are dependent. God designed us as creatures to be dependent upon Him, the Creator. And tithing is actually a way where we give testimony with our lives that we recognize the Creator, unlike us, rules and reigns over all. Which means all the universe isn't just His realm, 
It's his ownership. Which means every penny we earn, every article of clothing we buy, those things ultimately belong to God. In the same way every tree, every bird, every fish in the sea belong to God. We see Jesus make this very point in an ironic way in Luke chapter 20. So you got Jesus, he's actually teaching in the temple, which is really interesting that he makes this point in the context of the temple, right? So here's the temple, and they're, they're gathering tithes and offerings. Jesus is teaching, he's preaching in that context, teaching about the gospel, those sorts of things, and the religious leaders kind of come as they are prone to do in the gospels, and you can just kind of tell they've been scheming, and it's probably like this week-long conference, we've got to think up. One question that will actually stump this guy. And so after their conference, they finally figure out this is the one. This is how we're going to trip him up. And so they come and they, they sneak into the, into the temple and he's teaching and they kind of come up to the front of the crowd and they toss out their loaded question. This is how they try to trap him in verse 22. Is it lawful for us to contribute to Caesar or not? That might seem like a little bit of a mundane question to us, right? Why wouldn't it be lawful to pay taxes. Well, they're assuming he's going to be stuck. Because to pay the tax is to affirm Roman sovereignty. It's to affirm the right of Rome to rule over Israel. And Israel's hope in the promise and the covenant is that they will one day be ruled by the Messiah, by God Himself, that they won't have overlords. And so there's this just, it just sticks in the craw of the Jewish people. They have to give taxes to Caesar and by doing so, recognize we are under Caesar. We might be returned to the land, but we're not our own lords in the land. But they assume it's a tricky question because if Jesus tries to appease everyone that's gathered in the temple, all these religious people, and says, oh yeah, you don't have to give anything to Caesar, they are just waiting to go run and tell the Roman officials, that Jesus, he's preaching you don't have to pay taxes. Look how big his crowds are. 5,000 people. They're not going to pay taxes to Caesar anymore. The assumption is they've caught him. Verse 23, But Jesus perceived their craftiness. He said to them, Show me a denarius. Denarius is a Roman coin. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? You know, it doesn't say it in the text, but I kind of imagine the religious leaders like, it's like a really obvious answer, but it's almost too obvious. Like they kind of pull together and hold together. It's Caesar, right? Like, it's, what, should we say Caesar? I mean, that's obviously what the answer is, but he's obviously trying to stumble us here. Well, they respond, it's Caesar's. Probably more like, it's Caesar's? He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. The guys that can't stand him are left silent at his answer. Now here's the point. It's not just a call to give taxes, to pay your taxes to the government, even if the government is evil. Rome is an evil government. And Jesus says, pay your taxes to Rome. God is sovereign over all things. He gives the sword to the government to wield it to keep order within society. Even when the government is evil, you pay your taxes. That's not the full point. The point actually goes much deeper. Listen, and I think we tend to overlook this, how D.A. Carson comments on the issue. Just a general rule of thumb. If Don Carson says something about a text, you should underline it. Pay attention to it. When Jesus asks the question, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Biblically informed people will remember that all human beings have been made in the image and likeness of God. It's not ultimately Caesar's image. It's the picture of a man made in the image of God. Moreover, his people have the inscription of God's law written on them. If we give back to God what has his image on it, we must all give ourselves to him. We have his image written on us. Render to God what is God's. All that you are is God's. So, he goes on to say, far from privatizing God's claim, that is the claim of religion, Jesus' famous utterance means that God 
always trumps Caesar. We may be obligated to pay taxes to Caesar, but we owe everything, our very being, to God. Whatever taxes the secular government may lay upon believers, those are always subsumed by the reminder that our first duty is to God who claims all of our lives. And the reason He claims our lives is because He's the Creator. And the reason He doubly claims our lives is because as believers, He's not just our Creator, He's our Redeemer. He's purchased us with the blood of Christ. So the wealthy man that just gets sucker punched by the government, 50% tax. This is unbelievable. This is so unconstitutional. Then makes a decision is way too much. It cuts too deep. I think it probably just means I only have to tithe on the remaining 50%. That's not Jesus' vision in Luke 20. In the same way, the poor widow, who pays no taxes at all. In fact, in our government system, gets money back from Uncle Sam. Well, man, if I'm so poor enough to pay taxes to Uncle Sam, surely I don't have to give to the church, right? If Uncle Sam is that kind to me, surely God understands. That's not the nature of Jesus' argument. What they should do in both cases and all cases in between is recognize that their giving off the gross is a fundamental testimony that Jesus is Lord of all. We, we sang it this morning, remember? Jesus Messiah, name above all names. We keep going and then we sing, Lord of all. We sing that. Hands are raised. Lord of all. You know what you're saying with that? It's all yours. Everything that I am is yours. Two absolutes, right? Death and taxes. Jesus says, for those who are in Christ, uh, death newly raised. You don't worry about taxes to this earthly kingdom. Give generously to an eternal kingdom. Everything belongs to God, and so He invites His people to imitate His generosity in all areas of life. So that goes from our bank accounts, not just your bank accounts, but it doesn't exclude, it, exclude that either. Here's a helpful illustration. I was listening to a message actually on giving on Malachi 3, by a friend of mine, he's a pastor in North Carolina, Sovereign Grace pastor out there, his name's Phil Sasser. Now, Phil, we will forgive him for being an Ohio State fan. He's definitely a little bit twisted in that regard. But Phil's a good guy. So we, we set those things aside. I was listening to this message, and Phil used a great illustration. It was really helpful. He gave the illustration of Sam Houston. You guys know who Sam Houston is? If you don't know who Sam Houston is, yeah. Mr. Texas up front, of course. Baylor. Sam Houston, if you've never heard of Sam Houston, you've heard of the city named after him. Houston, Texas. He's the one-time governor of Tennessee and then the head honcho in the Lone Star Republic of Texas. Well, Sam Houston, for all that he's known for in history, actually got converted later in life. His third wife actually brought him to Christ. He's a big, he's a big deal. Everything's bigger in Texas, right? Well, Sam Houston is the biggest deal in Texas. He gets saved and he decides upon getting saved that he's going to give half, half of his income to the church he's attending. And one of his buddies who knew him before conversion is like, Sam, what are you doing? Like, that's just absurd. And he has this great quote. When I got baptized, my wallet got baptized too. Sam Houston's little pledge. God owns everything. Why else is it good to give a tithe and beyond? And this is a huge one. Number three. Because our giving supports the Great Commission. In the Old Testament, they're instructed to give to support all the things that happen at the temple. And that's important because the temple is where sacrifices get made, where there's atonement and forgiveness of sins central to God's mission in the Old Testament. It's foreshadowing the greater mission, though. It's foreshadowing the mission of the Messiah 
And then the mission changes, where in the Old Testament, Israel is called to be a light to the nations, to be a people on the hill, to live in such a way that the nations come to them. In the New Testament, the script gets flipped. Now the church, the new Israel, is called to go out to the nations. New mission. Go testify. Don't wait for them to come. Go out to them. There's no more temple in the New Testament. The church is the new Israel. So we don't give to a temple or a sacrificial system to serve a function for God's mission. We give to local churches. Those places where God has committed to extend His mission. As the new temple of the Holy Spirit, as Paul describes us. The people of God. Now, you can misunderstand that passage and think that when Paul says, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, like each one of us individually is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Greek is loaded with plural language. Plural pronouns. You are the temple of the Spirit. You, y'all, y'all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So when you, y'all, when y'all gather, when y'all get together to sing some songs, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is there in your midst. That's the sense, the corporate identity of God's people. Because that's the church. It's the bride of Christ. The people of God are the central place where He plans to work out His commitment for redemption and reclamation. That's how Malachi foreshadows this connection to mission. Verses 11 to 12. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. And that's a real promise to Malachi and the remnant. But it foreshadows a bigger promise. And it looks back to a bigger promise. It's talking and recalling God's promise to Abraham. Abraham, through you, through descendants as multiple as the stars, but specifically through one great descendant, through your seed, singular, all the nations will be blessed. Who's that seed? It's Jesus. Jesus is the source of blessing. Malachi's command still stands. Tithe. Give generously so the nations will be blessed. But Scripture interprets Scripture. And as we keep reading, you flip those pages and you start the New Testament and you realize, oh, you know why we give? So that the blessing will come through this great commission that the Messiah, the seed, fulfills. That the Messiah, the seed, gives to His people, the church. The entire book of Malachi echoes this message. There's this just sense of messianic expectation in Malachi. Malachi 1.1 The oracle of the word of Yahweh the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Remember what Malachi means? My messenger. So the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by my messenger. Now we see in three one. there's an important double meaning on the prophet's name. Behold, 3.1, beginning of our chapter this morning, I send my messenger. And he will prepare the way before me. Does that sound familiar? Sounds a lot like a guy called John the Baptist. Preparing the way for the Messiah. The Messiah who will come and accomplish the apex of God's mission and then when he ascends, will give as a commission to his people, to the church, to the reconstituted new Israel, the commission of now going out to the nations. The temple is no longer the place of strategic role in fulfilling God's promises to Abraham and to the nations. It's the church. And so God's ordained means, our giving, is meant to be the supply line that ensures disciples are made and matured here in Johnson County, in Kansas City, in the Midwest, to the ends of the earth. So we support the work of elders to proclaim the Word. 
And we support our union of churches to plant churches and to break ground for the Gospel. You want to read a great book, it's going to push you. And it's going to be a really good kind of uncomfortable on this sort of topic. It's Money, Possessions, and Eternity by Randy Alcorn. A lot of you have probably heard the name. Maybe you've read the shorter version, The Treasure Principle. You want to jump into the stake stuff? Money, Possessions, and Eternity. But he says this in that book. Abundance. Everybody in this room has had a flavor and a taste of abundance. Abundance isn't God's provision for me to live in luxury. It's His provision for me to help others. God entrusts me with His money, His money, not to build my kingdom on earth, but to build His kingdom in heaven. A really cool story at the Desiring God Pastors Conference this last winter. Mark Prater, who's now our new executive director, was there at the Sovereign Grace booth meeting with people interested in Sovereign Grace. 400 people came by the booth and had like substantive conversations with Mark and the team. And of those 400, 35 men, 35 men expressed a desire to have ongoing conversations with Sovereign Grace, with our union of churches, about planting churches. Those 35 men represent 35 potential churches where the Gospel will be proclaimed in its fullness where conversions will happen, where people who are lost in darkness will come to know the great light of the Gospel in Jesus Christ. That's an amazing thing. Thirty, Just one conference, one table, one booth, 35 men show an interest, a desire to plant, to be a part of the Great Commission to the planting and building of local churches. Don't let funds limit our ability to send out and plant 35 churches. Those men will need funding. They'll need support. They'll need the ability to, to get robust theological education. That's why tithing is important. Next reason. Giving, generosity, kills mammon worship. I just kind of want to use the word mammon. Right? Mammon worship. Mammon is the god of materialism. And our culture is driven by it. Advertisements bombard us everywhere we turn, in the radio. It feels like every time you turn the radio on, you're hearing advertisements, not actually songs or people talking about the sports. Billboards as you drive down the road give you advertisements inducing you to buy. Magazines are more filled with advertisements than articles. The TV has tons and tons of advertisements. The internet, you open a page and pop-up ads flaunt you. We're tempted to think constantly in our culture that we need, we need what they are trying to sell us. That's what the advertisements are doing. This isn't just kind of a neat thing. It's a need thing. You must have this. Buy this and you'll be happy. Buy more of this and you'll be more happy. Buy a new version of something you've already got and you'll have a fresh happiness. We breathe that toxic air every day in our culture. Generous giving. It's like putting on a gas mask. It filters out the toxicity. I get to breathe fresh air. Because my heart is going to a different place. You give generously, and you know what happens? Your desires start to change. Your source of joy starts to change. Instead of being consumed by the culture, looking just like the culture, you start to bear witness. You start to become a light to the culture. Giving generously, giving beyond a tithe, is an absolute antidote to the greedy disease that often infects our hearts. Want to kind of have a barometer for mammon worship? How do you think about giving? when it comes to decisions about stuff you want to buy. Ah, oh, 
new sweet LED flat screen TV. Costco's even got a sweet sale, so it's like an awesome deal. I know I should give, but man, that TV. Man, you know, we should probably give this month, but the savings just seem a little depleted. Maybe I'll just prioritize for the next two or three months giving my first fruits to the savings account. You know, I make sure my 401k gets that direct deposit. And you know what? When my 401k gets a direct deposit, it ain't the net. It's the gross. I make sure my employer is giving me that off the gross too. But that sometimes makes it a little bit tighter and more difficult to give generously. Or I deduct my 401k from what I'm expected to actually give generously from. Those are all little things. They hit close to home for me too. But I think they're indictments of mammon worship in our culture. What we do with our money is a powerful barometer for our souls. What you do with your money says a lot about the nature of your heart. When Malachi condemns the tithe, it's not about legalism, the lack of a tithe. The point of verse 10 isn't that you give to get saved. That is not the point. You give because it reflects right worship. The whole point of Malachi is that God doesn't want just your lips. He wants your hearts. And generosity, like few things, reveals the state of our hearts. Final reason to give generously. To give a tithe and beyond. Because giving increases our reward. Verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says Yahweh the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Give generously and put me to the test that in your generous giving, I won't meet your needs. Tithing isn't some advanced level of stewardship for super-Christians. In the Old Testament, it's commanded for the entire nation. As Randy Alcorn so appropriately puts it, tithing is more like the training wheels of giving. Baby Christians should tithe. Mature Christians, the ones that are aware of the depths of their sin, aware of the great price of the cross, aware of the preciousness of blood that was shed and interposed, what Peter talks about, we read in that prayer this morning, that no, they were ransomed from feudal ways, not with perishable things like silver and gold. Silver and gold, perishable. He's making a statement. The things you value most are perishable things. That's not what you were ransomed with. You know what you were ransomed with? The precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You know what God's saying there? You know what I gave you? I gave you the ultimate first fruit. I gave you my son, the impeccable lamb of God. And I took him and I laid him on the altar. And I hung him on a tree. And he was despised. And he was shamed. And he was crushed. And I poured out my holy wrath against all of your sin on my precious first fruit spotless lamb for you to save you. That's the nature of my generosity. That you, believers in God, would be raised from the dead. That you would have faith and hope in God. Mature believers who know that who rejoice in that, who are intoxicated by that, 
they find it joyful to give generously. Tithing won't get you saved. It will not get you saved. You will not get into heaven because you tithe. Won't do it. But I believe generosity, founded in faith in Christ, will get you more joy. That's the essence of Christ's indictment to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 23. One of the only places in the New Testament, maybe the only place, where the word tithe is actually mentioned. Jesus mentions it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. The point is twofold. There are bigger fish to fry than tithing. Tithing is not the main thing in the same way polity is not the main thing. The Pharisees did that. Mint and dill are like these little tiny herbs, these little tiny seeds, and they're like really careful to like count it. I've got 300 dill seeds, and so I'm going to set aside these 30 dill seeds because this is going to make me right with God. That's the little stuff Jesus says. You're obsessing over that in your little corner of the temple, and you're not acting justly. You're not living faithfully. You're not seeking out to be merciful. But the other point is Jesus doesn't then say, don't worry about tithing. Do the other stuff. He says they should still be doing it. The idea isn't that God doesn't care if you rob Him by failing to generously support the work of His house. That's the word Malachi uses, right? You're robbing Him if you don't give generously. It's kind of uncomfortable, isn't it? It's uncomfortable to sit up here and preach it. Robbers. Just, just kidding, I don't know. if you're... The point Jesus makes is it implies tithing is a small thing. It's training wheel stuff. It should be one of the easiest things we do in the Christian life. Think about that. It's so basic, even the Pharisees are faithful to do it. And God promises to bless those who are generous. Now that is not prosperity gospel mumbo-jumbo. God ain't promising you a Ferrari if you give generously. He's not promising you a promotion. He's not promising you a bigger house. He's not promising you silk suits. He doesn't promise to fulfill all their greeds in Malachi, does He? He says, I'll fulfill your needs. In response to the prosperity gospel, we can't lose sight of the fact that God makes a promise there. I will provide. Trust me. Put me to the test. If you give generously, your land is parched. Like, so they're living in this time where it's like there's a temptation not to give because... Things aren't coming in. There's a little bit of a lack, right? The point he makes in Malachi is, you know why things ain't coming in? Because you're not tithing. I'm actually withholding some things as a lesson to you. But he says, he promises, if you give generously, I will respond. I will open, not the storehouses of the temple, right? I will open the storehouses of heaven. Get this little funny temple. It's a puny temple compared to the old temple. Even the old temple is finite compared to my storehouses in heaven. That's a promise. Very godly woman I know. She was just sharing the testimony of their life. She and her husband just said, you know, we've done things that some people would probably think are foolish in the way that we give. We don't have the quote-unquote correct amount set aside in our savings. We're past 60 now. We don't have the quote-unquote correct amount set aside for our retirement. But we just feel called to give radically. And we've done it for the decades of our marriage. And God has never failed to provide for us. And it wasn't like this, name it, claim it, mumbo-jumbo. It was the testimony of faith. 
She got an inheritance. Her last living relative. You know what she and her husband did with the inheritance? A lady who doesn't have a bunch in savings, doesn't have a bunch in retirement, could really be thinking, hey, we've been tithing all these years. This inheritance is really God's symbol of provision, right? She went and took the large sum, the majority of the inheritance, and sowed it into the kingdom. Your financial advisor would probably tell you you're stupid for that. Jesus says otherwise. Because verse 10 is a foreshadowing. It's not just that you're going to have your needs met here. It's a foreshadowing that there are eternal rewards for holiness. The New Testament doesn't dwell on the tithe. I think because the tithe too easily becomes a ceiling. I think we read so little explicit instruction regarding the amount because the New Testament is driven by grace. Grace doesn't lower the bar. Grace blows the roof off. It's not about grudgingly forking over what's required. It's about considering the grace of Christ and the promises of God's inheritance that are found in Christ. And it's about longing to have fullness of joy in Christ. So grace isn't satisfied with a little blessing and a little reward and a little resemblance to Jesus. It wants to enjoy the fullness of Christ. And if giving generously is one small, easy, training wheel way to grip Jesus more firmly and more joyfully, then I can't wait to give. Because I want that more than anything else. He's better than a vacation. He's better than years spent living out my life in Arizona. Jesus is more. He's deeper. He's sweeter. He's better. And our rewards in heaven, listen to this, will be proportional to our holiness here. Listen to what Jesus says. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Twofold thing going on there. Where you give, your heart will follow. And where you give is also showing where your heart is. There's a double meaning there. But it's also the sense... In the same way, there's a proportionality. The more I store away here, the bigger my storehouse gets. Jesus isn't saying, anybody who throws $1 in the offering plate, you're going to get to heaven and everybody's going to have the same mansion. Now this kind of feels weird in our American sense of equality, right? There's a proportionality to treasure and reward in heaven. It's not like if Bill Gates starts tithing, Bill Gates is going to get the biggest mansion. It's going to be proportional to your sacrifice. In the same way, your holiness will be proportional to your amount, the amount and your ability to enjoy God in heaven. That sounds like weird stuff, but you've got to remember this. Heaven is a place devoid of sin. There's no jealousy. You don't look at the person who's got more holiness on earth and so from day one in heaven has a deeper sense of awe at Christ and think, man, I wish I had more. You're thinking... That is unbelievable. I'm so happy for the Apostle Paul. That's what happens. This is the stuff you get from Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards talked about, you hear it in Sam Storms' message called Joy's Eternal Increase. It's not like you get to heaven and bam, glorification happens and whoop, you're filled up and that's where you're going to be for all of eternity. Full of joy at this level. It's like bam, glorification, whoop, filled with joy. And now for all eternity, more and more and more and more and more joy. But, there's a reward for holiness. When Paul gets to heaven and he gets zapped, it is going to be awesome. The amount of glory and the capacity he has for joy in Christ. The capacity, the nature of His treasures, the nature of His reward, because He will have lived so sold out for Jesus here that He will have a greater capacity when He gets there to start enjoying Christ from. And you're not going to look at Him and think, oh, that Paul. Here's the deal. When we get to heaven and it's going to be a physical place, new heavens, new earth, He's preparing a place for us. You're going to have physical bodies. You're going to have places to live. There's going to be neighborhoods. There's going to be mansions. I hope we all live in the same neighborhood. Wouldn't that be cool? Together, we're pursuing joy in Christ through generosity and pursuit of holiness. We live in the same neighborhood, but I don't want to be living next to the thief on the cross. I want to be living across the street from Paul. 
I want to be living down the road from the Macedonians. I want to be living next door to Jim Elliott. This was no price to give my life for Jesus. That's where I want to live. I want to experience Jesus with that kind of fullness, with that kind of proportion for all eternity. Don't lay up treasures on earth. Lay them up in heaven. Don't invest your heart and your resources into finite investments and material possession. Invest yourself. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. It's where you store up your treasure where your heart finds rest. I want to have great capacity for joy in heaven. And I want you to have it with me. Which really means I want to have great capacity for Jesus. In giving, generosity, the tithe and beyond is one small, easy, training wheels sort of way to sow into the eternal joy of Jesus. Would you bow your heads?